All right, let's turn our Bibles uh, tonight to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 14. Uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 14, we are just continuing along here in our study. We looked at chapter 13 last Wednesday, and uh, let's look together at all 33 verses as we uh, look to God's Word together tonight. Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 14 and verse number 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruhi, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa to and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. And go to the king and speak this to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. They quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan or the whole family has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to me, leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go on to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Now if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And then she said, Please, let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And then the woman said, Please let your servant speak one more word to my lord, the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. Now we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought the word of my Lord the King will set me at rest, for my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my Lord the King speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my Lord the King, one cannot turn to the right hand nor to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in my mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. 
But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all the things that are on the earth. Surprisingly, the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels, uh, some, some believe five to six pounds there, by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. But one day Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time. Joab would not come. Then he said to the servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go, set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set it on fire. And then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. And Joab went to the king and told him, summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. I, I, I want to remind us uh, this evening about the message that Nathan the prophet delivered to David from God after uncovering his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. You'll, you'll find the statement back in chapter number 12 and verses 10 and 11. And Nathan looks to David and says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I bring that to our attention because this is exactly what we are seeing unfold in the life of King David and his family. The consequences of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah that Nathan the prophet declared would come to him is now coming to pass. He is feeling, experiencing uh, the consequences of his sin. Of course, we saw this unfolding back in chapter 13 last Wednesday as David's family had become extremely fractured. You'll remember Amnon sexually assaulted his half-sister Tamar, who was Absalom's full sister. All three, of course, Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom, all three, of course, are, are David's children, but with two different mothers. And although he was angry, David shockingly kept silent. 
not dealing with the issue on any level, not dealing with it in regards to Tamar, Tamar, not dealing with it in regards to Absalom. It would seem that Amnon here was the spoiled prince who got by with whatever he wanted from his father. However, David is silent, Absalom is not. He's furious, and he decided to take matters into his own hands. And after two years of separation from Amnon, and of course David's ongoing silence, Absalom devised a plan and ordered a hit on Amnon's life. Now Amnon's dead. And Absalom has fled to the suburbs of Jerusalem, a place called Gesher, where his maternal grandfather reigned. It's outside of the jurisdiction of David's authority, so there he is safe. And so what we see happening here is the ongoing fracturing of this family. And and truly, this fracture is beyond measure. The camera here in chapter 14, the camera, if you will, focuses in now on David and Absalom, specifically the distance between them. Father and son in public view are now separated. The tension is known. The distance is felt. There's physical distance, of course. We've already, we've already read about that. David is in Jerusalem, and Absalom's living in the suburbs in Gesher. So there's obvious physical distance, but there's also relational distance, both of which are being impacted by the clear spiritual distance that existed in both of their lives. I read this, and I'm reminded even in my own life, That every relationship that I have, every relationship that you have is capable of experiencing the tension of distance. There's even been moments even in our marriage where one of us will say to the other, I I feel distant from you. What's what's going on? We're we're not clicking. We're not close. I, I feel distant. There may very well be someone right now in your life, perhaps a child, a parent, a husband, a wife, a church member, even a friend, that it doesn't just feel distant. There is distance between you. Things aren't right, and maybe it hasn't been right for a while. That is the context of 2 Samuel 14. There is a distance between David and Absalom. Things aren't right, and it hasn't been right for a while. But as in David and Absalom's situation, so it is with ours. Whenever there is a distance between us relationally, it is most often an issue of unresolved conflict, unspoken hurt, disagreement, and of course, an unforgiven offense. And when this unresolved conflict or unspoken hurt or unforgiven offense exists, we we allow it to fester, we allow it to stew, to brood, and as we do, that distance 
grows and the tension sharpens. Absalom is absolutely furious at his father for not speaking up for Tamar and dealing with Amnon when he sexually assaulted her. Absalom justifies his actions of doing what his father was supposed to do in terms of what the law required. But David, on the other hand, is upset with Absalom for taking matters into his own hands and murdering his brother, who was the apparent heir to the throne. Now Absalom is upset because his father won't address him at all. Not even his actions, good or bad. And for three years, the text tells us that this distance has existed. So let's get to the bottom of it. Because regardless of the conflict, hurt, disagreement, or offense, the reasons are always the same. Whether we're talking about the distance that exists between David and Absalom or the distance between you and your own father, you and your friend, you and another church member, whatever the case may be, the reasons for these conflicts, hurt, disagreement, and offenses, they're always the same for why distance develops in our relationship. And of course, here in chapter 14, we get a brief glimpse of these things as the narrator walks us through this part of David's life. And as we do, I want you to ask yourself the question tonight as you think about any tense or broken relationships that may be in your life tonight. Ask yourself the question, why does it feel like there's a distance between us? Why does it feel like there's a distance between us? My spouse, my children, whoever. Why does it feel like there's such a distance between us? Well, first of all, there may be a distance between you because of the pride that keeps silent. The pride that keeps silent. That's what we see in the first 20 verses of the chapter. Now, let me just say something here as we think about the the pride that keeps silent. Because there is a pride that is loud. There's a pride that's bombastic. There is a pride that is arrogantly boisterous. But there is also a pride that is quiet. A pride that is silent. Verse 1 has been a source of controversy among scholars and commentators. Because in light of the story, it's hard to understand why we read here in verse 1 that the king's heart is going out to Absalom. In other words, why does it say that the heart of the king is going out to his son while at the same time David is choosing not to have anything to do with him? So so the controversy is, well, what's, what's really going on here? What does it mean when it says that the king's heart is going out to Absalom? Now, to me, to me, the best explanation of this is that David did want to have a restored relationship with his son. But he was so prideful that he refuses to speak, to speak to him. Because he knows that, that if he speaks, it means that he has to acknowledge his own wrong in the story and not accuse Absalom of being the only guilty party. So instead of being willing to confess his own mistakes, the fact that 
he royally messed up by not defending his daughter, the fact that he royally messed up by not dealing with Amnon appropriately, the fact that he messed up by allowing his his son Absalom to exist in this distant relationship, he would just rather say nothing at all. He misses, indeed, what he had with his son, but he has done nothing in three years to bring him back home. He's done nothing about it. David is giving his son what we absolutely hate to receive, the silent treatment. The silent treatment. When we give someone the silent treatment, we are showing in that relationship that our hearts are filled with pride. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to address it. So we choose out of pride to just stay silent. Because deep down inside we know. We know that if we do address it, if we do talk about it, that for any distance to truly be removed in that relationship, we're going to have to humbly admit where we were wrong in the situation. (laughs) That the one that feels distant from us at this moment is not the only one at fault. They're not the only one that is guilty. They're not the only one with some issues of sin. That yes, we too have our own issues and problems. And again, it's pride. It's pride that never admits I was wrong. See, David's emotions went out to Absalom. But David's pride kept Absalom at a distance. Kept him away. Now, the lengthiest part of this chapter is the conversation that takes place next. And because of its length and nuances, I'm just going to summarize what happens. Joab, who we have already met, we know him as David's nephew as well as David's chief of staff, for lack of a better description. He decides he wants to intervene in this little conflict. Now, this is not the sermon to speculate on whether or not this was a good idea or a bad idea. Some people indeed have good intentions when they do something like this. But to be honest, there's some people, even in good intentions, they, 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 they can make matters worse by intervening. Maybe some of us need to hear that tonight. You might have good intentions in trying to intervene in someone else's conflict, but you can make matters worse. It's it's important that we are sure that if we choose to intervene, we must be sure that we are being led by the Spirit in these situations and not by our own motives. We do know that according to verse 20, That Joab is doing this in order to change the course of things. That's what the text tells us. This whole episode is because he wants to change the course of things. I think personally that Joab knows that this rift in the royal family is not good for the kingdom. Perhaps he has the foresight to assume a civil war might break out if David and Absalom do not reconcile. Whatever the exact reason is Joab chooses to intervene. And here's how he does it. He hires an actress. 
The woman is eloquent. The Bible says she's wise here. That is, she's convincing and she's willing to do it. He wants her to look the part of a mourner, go into the king with her story, and stick to the script that Joab gives her. Now, we, as we read the Bible, we're given that all up front. So we know she, she's going through this story that none of this is real. It's all, it's all fake. It's a, it's a script that Joab has written for her to, to, to prove his point, to get across. And, and that's what we have to, have to answer is, why is he doing this? Because he, he, he wants to present before the king this fictitious story that will be so similar to David's own family dynamic, hoping that it will convince him to reconcile with his son. It's a good old-fashioned setup. You might even find it similar to Nathan's confrontation. But there is a difference. There's a difference, a big difference. And that is God sent Nathan. Joab sent this woman. And there's a huge difference. That's why in any of our confrontations, in any of our attempts to intervene, we must be sure that it is God sending us and not ourselves. So she pretends she's a widow who had two sons, and these two sons were fighting in a field. You can read about it in the first 20 verses. One of the sons killed the other, and now the rest of the family wants to execute the brother who did this and put him to death also. She begs the king to provide wisdom for her situation because if she loses her son, her other son, then she will have lost everything in her life. She's already lost her husband. She's lost the other son due to the murder. And now the one who's committed the murder, he's all she's got. And, of course, there's this back and forth exchange between her and David. At the beginning, it feels like that David's just kind of doing joy of a favor. Sure, bring her in. And he says, oh, of course, I'll take care of it. Go on your way. And then she says, no, can I say one more thing? And he says, I assure you I'm going to deal with this. Can I say one more thing? And it's just this, this back and forth exchange, back and forth exchange. And he assures her. He assures her that he's going to protect her son as well as her own life and show mercy to their family, regardless of what that boy had done. And it's here that the woman turns course. After he agrees to provide mercy to the brother who had committed the murder. And to protect him and keep him alive, regardless of what the other family felt toward him. She then looks at him and says, why then are you not showing mercy to your son? Now David's no fool. He begins to figure out what has happened. And so he asks the woman, did Joab put you up to this? Now, it's, it's of my observation here that the very fact that David even asked that question, it seems to me, now look, three years have gone by. So conversations have had to have happened between David and Joab. And it would appear to me that David knew exactly how Joab felt about this riff. And that maybe even for three years, Joab had been asking the king to reconcile with Absalom. So when he figures out that this story is almost identical, and then the woman says, why are you doing the same thing with Absalom? The first thing that comes to his mind is the one that he's always talking to about it. Did Joab put you up to this? Is Joab the reason that you came in here? Tell me the truth. Is Joab responsible for all that you just shared? And of course, the woman admitted that he was. And that it was his idea, again, again, in order to change the course of things. Now, 
this intervention did not bring reconciliation, as we will see. Some would even say that it made matters worse, and I would be in that, in that column. But there is a slight change. Because for three years there had been a physical distance. But now, in a shocking turn of events, that physical distance is going to disappear. It's going to go away. But the distance is still there, okay? Instead of being in the suburbs, he's going to allow Absalom to come home. But even though Absalom's coming home, he's really not returning back to David. Which brings us back to the question as we think about our own tense relationships. Why does it feel like there's a distance between us? Well, for one, because of the pride that keeps silent. We're not talking about it. We're not addressing it. We're avoiding it. We don't want to acknowledge our own mistakes in it, our own pride, our own issues. So we're just not going to do anything. But also because, and here's the second point, there's a distance between us because of the bitterness that stays distant. The bitterness that stays distant. And that's what we see when we come to verse 21. The king says to Joab, fine, go. Bring back the young man Absalom. You can even sense in the tone in which he is addressing Absalom, there seems to be an absence of paternal affection here. Go get the young man. I don't know how it is in, in your home, but I have little... Things for my boys. Keegan is K-Man. Jaden has become J-Man. And uh, if I'm talking to them or about them, at least not in an official professional capacity, I'll often say, go get K-Man or K-Man, let's go. Or, and my son's been away from me. I'm like, bring my boy home. Bring K-Man. I hadn't seen him in three years. Go. You're right. Go get him. There's no paternal affection here. Go get the young man. Go get the guy, Absalom, and bring him back. So, so before you get excited about this, well, maybe his intervention worked. Let's just make it clear here. David did not want to do this. I think he felt pressured. I think he even felt manipulated by Joab. David is making a change with Absalom in terms of physical distance, but the relational distance is still there. There's still a distance between them. Verse 24, look at it. And the king said, let him, Absalom, dwell apart in his own house. All right, he's not living in my house. No, 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 no. He's going to live in his own house. In fact, he says in verse 24, he is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Verse 28 tells us that this was the arrangement for another two full years. Again, David's like, fine, go get him, but he must keep his distance from me. I don't want to see him at all. I don't want to bump into him. I don't want to run into him. I don't want to see him. He's not welcome in my house. You see, the bitterness is still there. Physically, he may be closer now, living in the same town, maybe right around the corner. 
going to the same grocery stores. I guarantee David's not going to the grocery store, but if he was. But there's still a distance. And it continues to rule David's heart. That is, this bitterness does. It's the same sentiment that you and I might have when we say something, well, you know what, I'm going to go to the family reunion, but I'm not going to look at him. And I'm not going to talk to him, and you, you, you better mark it down. I'm sitting on the other side of the playground, not anywhere near him. It's even equivalent to sleeping in the same bed with your spouse, night after night after night, but yet feeling so far away from one another. Why is it that we get this way? Why do these distances happen? I wrote down a couple of things. One, I think sometimes we want people to suffer for how they have made us suffer. And we do that not realizing our own torment. See, see we think by giving the silent treatment that we're hurting them. And the Bible makes it very clear what we're actually doing is tormenting our own souls. The root of bitterness dwelling up inside, troubling ourselves. And oftentimes when we're hurt, we want the people who hurt us to hurt. We, we want people to suffer who are causing us to suffer. And so we stay bitter. We stay silent. We keep our distance. I think another reason why this this distance takes place is that we fail to see the greatness of our own sin that Christ has forgiven in us. It's the the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? Matthew 18, I, I wanted to read it to you tonight. I don't have time, but write it down. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. You know, it's the guy who goes before the... Uh, the, the debt that he owed, and he begs and pleads, and oh, please forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I mean, the man owed tens of thousands of dollars equivalent to our economic standard. And he was forgiven. And then he turns right around, what? And a guy owed him 10 measly bucks. And he made him work for it and refused to. Forgive him. And after all that he had been forgiven, he pushed it away. And the whole point of Jesus telling the story is, look, when it comes to your sin, you've been forgiven millions and millions and millions of dollars worth. But this little conflict, this this little distance, this little tension, it's chump change compared to what I've done for you in my son Jesus on the cross. So often, I'm speaking for myself. When I'm giving someone the silent treatment, when I'm keeping my distance, when there's bitterness and my refusal to forgive, it's often because I have failed to see just how much of the gross sin in my own life that God has forgiven. Of course, I think this distance comes when we also lose sight of the gospel work that God can do in others. When we humble ourselves. That it may very well be your humility, your seeking to make things right, that God will use to show them the truth of the gospel of Christ. Now let me just add that this is not just about David, right? Okay? It seems like we're picking on David a lot. 
But this is about Absalom also. And we get a glimpse into the kind of man that Absalom was or has at least become over the period of time he's been in Gesher. Look at it quickly, verse 25. He's described here as a strong, handsome stud. That's what's in the Hebrew. He's a strong, handsome stud. I don't know what it feels like to be described that way, but that's how Absalom is described. He's He's a strong, handsome man. In fact, verse 25 tells us he's a celebrity. He's a celebrity in Israel. Everybody praises him because of how strong and handsome he was. Of course, in verse 26 we see that he and everyone else even loves his hair. Isn't it interesting the things that the Bible chooses to point out to us about people? This guy was handsome, he was a stud, he was a celebrity, the girls were obsessed with him, and he really loved his hair. I read that and I'm thinking to myself, maybe there were billboards up in Jerusalem on the way to Gesher that had a picture of him with a blow dryer combing his hair back out. Absalom, he's our guy, you know. There's a hint of narcissism here. I think that's what he's saying. Absalom thought so much of his hair that when he went in and get it cut, he would weigh it. Five to six pounds worth of beautiful hair that he grows out. He's an egocentric man, preoccupied with himself. And then as, as just a little subscript in verse 27, we're just told that he hasn't forgotten what has happened to his sister because he has a few sons and a daughter, and he names his daughter Tamar, who also happens to be beautiful. So the whole idea of, hey, let's just let bygones be bygones, not with Absalom. Or the whole thought process that it gets better over time, not with Absalom. He'll never forget how he was wronged and his sister was treated. Now again, Absalom has come home to Jerusalem, but he hasn't come home as a humble, repentant son. He's actually come home as a prideful, defiant personality. Fellas, I couldn't help but think about Ephesians 6 while studying this today. In fact, I wasn't even planning to include this until I was, felt convicted in my own heart about it. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Had David not kept silent, had David not kept distant, would Absalom been humble and repentant? It should, at the very least, serve as a strong reminder to us as parents that our actions have a major impact on the godliness of our children. David is majorly at fault. And now look, now look at how bitter, angry, narcissistic, his son is. Now, a quick recap of the timeline. I'm going to give you the last one and we're going to be done. So, seven years ago from this point, Amnon assaulted Tamar. That's where we're at. I know it was just last week in our study, but this was seven years ago. Five years ago, Absalom killed Amnon and lived in Gesher for three years. 
Now Absalom is back in Jerusalem for two years, but without any interaction with his father, which again brings us back to the question that we're asking. Why is there such a distance between us? Why is there such a distance between us? Because of, one, the pride that keeps silent. Secondly, because of the bitterness that stays distant. Thirdly and finally, because of the anger that remains masked. The anger that remains masked. Verses 29-33. What do we find here? Absalom is frustrated. He has concluded that it would be better to be banished back to Geshur than it is to live in Jerusalem and not be allowed to have any interaction with his own father, the king. So he tries to get Joab's attention in order to set up an appointment with King David. And his whole measure of doing this, we we get to see another insight into his character here in verses 29 and 32. He's not only egocentric, all about his hair and his good looks and all this sort of of, of stuff, but, but when Joab wouldn't take his calls... When he kept leaving voice messages and Joab would never respond, he decided that it would be best to set the barley fields that Joab owned on fire. Maybe that'll get his attention. It'd be like you going and burning somebody's yard up because they never returned your text message. That's what he's doing. This guy is insane. But it worked. (laughs) It got Joab's attention. The two met. Absalom demanded a meeting with David and... Joab was, of course, able to make it happen. There's obvious anger in Absalom's soul, isn't there? In this relationship, think about it. David is dominated by pride and bitterness, and Absalom is dominated by pride and anger. But for a brief moment of interaction, a brief moment of interaction, they mask it. And that's often what happens when there is a distance relationally that we refuse to erase through forgiveness and reconciliation. We play the role of a hypocrite, a pretender. Our interactions are at best insincere. Oh, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Good, great. Good to see you, you too. Oh, I did not want to run into them today. Verse 33. Joab went to the king and told him. So he sent him Absalom. So he, Absalom, came. Notice this. Doesn't say to his dad. He came to the king. And he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed him. So so to me, this is striking. This interaction is between a servant. He's bowing himself down with his face on the ground. King, king, king. So he's playing the role of servant. David's playing the role of king. This is servant and king. This is not... Son and dad. No, 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 not that at all. There's no weeping. At least not recorded. There's no weeping, no embracing. Hey, no fatted calf being killed as we see in the story of the prodigal son. 
where Jesus shows us, shows us what, what true forgiveness is like when someone in your life is distant, but they choose to come home. And, man, we're going to throw a party. We're going to live it up tonight. Bring him on down. I've been waiting. I've been watching. My boy has come home. There is absolutely none of this. In fact, as far as what's recorded right here in the chapter, not even words are mentioned. Even the kiss was the standard royal political greeting. It was not the affection of a parent. You see, their pride, their bitterness, their anger toward each other was being masked by an awkward, tense, and insincere interaction. And if you don't believe me, Come back next week for chapter 15, and it proves it to be so. So what do we do with this? Well, I think, once again, we are reminded that there is a king whose kingdom is dominated by justice and mercy. It's not David's kingdom. Not at this point, at least. But there is a king whose kingdom is dominated by justice and mercy, a king who does not hold our sins against us, a king that does not keep us distant from him when we fail him, but a king who says when we come to him by faith, we can receive the fullness of grace and forgiveness. We can come home, if you will, wrapped in the loving arms of God our Father, being reconciled to him no matter what we have done. No distance. It's to this king that we worship. It is this king that we trust. It is King Jesus. But secondly, let's get to the bottom of the distance that exists between us. And you know what I mean by that. The distance that exists in your relationships. Get to the bottom of it. Why is the distance there between you and your spouse? Why is the distance there between you and your children? Why is the distance between there and your once close friend? Why is it there? Well, there's a reason it's there. Because there's a pride in your life that's remaining silent. A bitterness that is remaining distance. And an anger that loves to wear the mask. I close with these verses and I'm just going to read them to you. Hebrews 12. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up, causing you trouble and causing many others to be defiled. Ephesians 4.30 do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice. Yes, keep those things at a distance. But in relationship to people, be kind to one another. Tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
Matthew 6, 12. A prayer that we're to pray every single day. Forgive us our debts in the same way that we forgive our debtors. Forgive me the same way. Stand together for prayer.